Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. Today's interview is going to be with Lior Avidar. He's the founder at Alt, which is a sports card collectibles platform that makes it super easy for investors to buy and sell authenticated investment-grade trading cards. Many of you have probably collected sports cards or know somebody who does or has as a hobby. And if so, hope you held onto those cards and give them away at a yard sale because today as an alternative asset class, sports cards serves a $15 billion market, which is expected to rise to $49 billion, Okay, inside of the next 10 years by 2032. So in this episode, Brad and Leo are going to geek out on their love for sports cards collecting, how Alt is making high-end collectibles more accessible to everyday investors, and his playbook for hiring top talent and scaling eight and nine-figure businesses. One more thing, we've got something special for DVDL listeners. And before I explain the free gift, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. In addition to Alt, Lior has also built a company called Lob. Okay, It's a modern approach to direct mail. And while direct mail is effective, let's face it, the process for sending it is stuck in the 90s. So Lob, Lior's platform, gives people a way to send hyper-personalized, targeted direct mail campaigns that are way more effective than just traditional mailers. So check out his company. This could be a super powerful tool for any advisor who wants to skyrocket their prospecting or client retention efforts. Okay. What's the free give? Lior has put together a report called the State of Direct Mail Consumer Insights 2023, which is going to provide you with actionable information to help shape and inform your direct mail strategy. Gives you all the data if you're looking to gain an edge in the direct mail market, take advantage of personalized direct mail at scale. This is your opportunity. So in order to gain access to this report, all you're going to have to do is text the number 29. So not the word, the number 29 to the DBDL Insider phone number. That's 785-800-3235 will send you a link back to the landing page where you can go ahead and grab that report. Please note text message and data rates may apply. You can opt out of receiving text messages at any time by replying stop to any message you receive. If you want the show notes to this episode, including links to all the resources, books mentioned, people discussed, you can grab those at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 29. As always, thank you for listening. Without further delay, today's conversation with Lior Abidar. Welcome to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. Really excited to have Lior Abidar with us today. How are you, Lior? Doing good, man. Pumped to be on the show. Did I get the last name right? I'm self-conscious, man. No, you got it. You killed it. I nailed it. Awesome. Well, um, really excited today. So for you advisors out there listening in or watching in, I have really gotten to know one of the companies that Lior runs really closely here over the last couple of years, Alt or Alt XYZ. And really, I'll let Lior do it justice. But honestly, it, it fed my sports card addiction. It fed my uh, investing addiction. And it was really probably the best way I can describe it. It was almost as if like the old school Beckett price guides that those of you that collected cards back in the day, it was as if it went in a time warp and like caught up to the rest of the world where really it aggregates sports card prices pulls in all of the details from auction houses. They have a platform where you can buy and sell sports cards. And so I believe, Lior, how you like to explain it, it's you want Alt to be the homepage of the hobby. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I want to build a modern marketplace for people to buy and sell alternative assets. And I wanted to start with trading cards. And yeah, to do that, you have to be the homepage of the hobby. You have to be the place that everyone is. It has to be the trusted source where people are going to every single day to buy and sell and just educate themselves on 
how much a card is worth or to get a little bit more information on a card. So uh, that's the current mission of the company. Well, let's go into, you have a really cool story, a uh, sports card story, but I'll, I'm going to just share a, a piece of mine. So grew up in the 80s, the, the heyday, as, as it's now affectionately known as the, the junk wax era of the hobby. And so for those that are, you know, I'm 42 as we record this, it was the day of Beckett sports card guides, sports card shows at all the local malls. And I remember the elusive 1989 Upper Deck King Griffey Jr. card that everybody was after and, you know, staring through the, the glass case looking at that thing. So probably from the age of about six or seven till probably 13 or 14, I was addicted to sports cards, probably uh, primarily baseball, little football, little basketball. But then basically grew up, got into sports, got into business, forgot about it. And then I think like many out there, COVID hits, no sports on TV stuck in your home. I venture down to my basement, get the old cards out. I've got three kids now, two boys, you know, 13 and almost 12. And that became a, a dad thing where we would look through like my old sports heroes and then their new ones. And we just started getting into it. And then I venture onto eBay and I see like, this thing is booming. Yeah. I, like sports cards are skyrocketing and, uh, and it pulled me right back in and I, Today's sports card market is much more complex. Uh, so many more variations and variables than the sports cards that I grew up with. But it really married my interest in sports, my interest in investing, just market dynamics, economics. And that's how I found all. You all had an early launch. I found it on a website, opted in, and then downloaded the app. And I will say, and it's not because you're on here, Lior, it is the tool I use most in the sports card marketplace. And uh, what I really started to get into is, is higher end cards, more investment grade cards. And so I know you have a cool story where I think you turn like a small amount of money, 10, 20, 30 K into a pretty substantial amount of money. So I thought that could maybe be a good way to kick it off as you share your version of that. And then how that eventually turned into one of the companies you're running today. Yeah, I guess the important context that I always try to share with people is that I started my career on Wall Street as a as a trader, and I always traded exotic derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, so uh, a lot of complex stuff on Wall Street. And one of my specialties was pricing things, right? It was, I really learned how to take, when there's an Ill illiquid asset, go and figure out how to get the comps and how to basically triangulate pricing. And so I started my career on Wall Street and then fast forward almost five years later, right? I was already out on the West Coast. I was already in the middle of starting my first venture-backed company. And my parents actually moved from Chicago to Colorado. And I had a box of cards and, you know, at home, they're like, well, what do, you, what do you want us to do with it? I was like, send it over. I miss them. Let's see what's going on, right? <laughs> I so miss them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's similar to people's COVID story, but it happened four years early. And so I got a bunch of the cards. And I don't know about you, but I'd never tried grading before. I always felt like it was this big no. thing. And, I, you know, obviously I knew the Beckett price guides and getting something graded felt like this like ordeal. And, you know, and I, for some reason, I was like, I want to try it. I want to see what, what happens. Right. And so I remember two things happened. One thing is the first is I was like, I'm going to not only get some of my old cards graded. And I didn't have anything crazy. I think the best card I had was like a Dennis Rodman card or something like that. But I also was like, you know what? I remember wanting this Kobe Bryant card. Like Kobe Bryant was my mm -hmm. guy growing up. I was I collected basketball cards. And so I went on eBay to buy a certain product. It was the 
I don't know if you're familiar with it, the 1996 EX2000. There was just this one Kobe Bryant card that I really wanted. So I bought the box. I remember it was like $350. It was two cards, 24 packs, 48 cards. And I got the Kobe Bryant card. So I was like, okay, I'll send the Kobe Bryant card. It's brand new. It's got to get the perfect grade and a couple of my old ones, right? And so I sent it in. And then I realized, oh my God, this is the easiest process ever. Like it's cost, it was $7 back then, right? Wow. I just had to send it into the mail. And then, you know, like call it two weeks later, I got the cards back and, you know, some of them graded perfect. The Kobe Bryant card actually got, I remember a PSA six, right? And so I was like, Ouch. yeah, I was like, okay, so it's not just because I buy it fresh out of the pack doesn't mean that it's going to grade perfectly. And so there was just a lot of like, I love the, you, you mentioned market dynamics. I really started getting interested in the market dynamics. My other company is in printing. So I was like really interested in like how the printers were manufacturing the cards. Right. And so that kind of started off the journey. I would say I started the next part that I started getting into was I looked at, I wanted to know what my PSA six was worth. And I went online to eBay and I saw that like a PSA 10 was worth like 20 times more. Right. And so I started then buying a lot of boxes, looking for the cards that try to get the really great cards. What was a PSA 10 worth just out of curiosity at that time? Back, back then it was worth around $1,500 and, the, okay. and a PSA nine was worth around 50 bucks. So like, and I didn't know that this is like this particular set was impossible to get in a PSA 10, right? That was not known to me. So, Lior, before we go too far down this path, because there's, I promise there's many listeners out there, we're talking Latin to them right now, PSA 6, PSA 10. Can you break down just grading in general, what that is? Because this was also something I had to figure out when I got back into cards. Yeah. So just like you have S&P and Moody's who are grading stocks, right? And giving them, you know, some sort of like, or generally bonds, sorry, like numerical grades. Mm -hmm. So in the card market, we have a couple of different grading agencies with different grading standards who are generally grading cards between on a, on a scale of one to 10. I mean, that's based on the card condition. So this is, they're looking at the corners, they're looking at the edges, they're looking at the centering of the card, and they're looking at the surface, generally kind of the, the, the four main predictors of the card condition. And then based on those elements, they'll rate the card between one and 10. And so there's a couple of different grading companies. There are kind of the two, I'd say two main prominent ones, PSA and Beckett, and then obviously some up-and-comers as well. And... The other thing that really quickly you figure out once you start to understand this is the population count of a card. And going back to the junk wax era where we all thought we were getting the 89 upper deck Ken Griffey Jr. card and that was going to be worth millions someday. What we didn't know at the time where there were millions of them being printed, oversupplied. So the other side of that is just like with a stock, a publicly traded stock, you can see the volume that it's traded at. Now you can almost see the volume of the sports cards, like at what level it was produced. So that Kobe Bryant, it had a PSA 10 had to be fairly scarce. Do you remember oh, yeah. the population I think, count? I don't, I want to say less than four in the world. I didn't start using population counts till later on. My big thing was I learned, I tried to reverse engineer what the grading companies were looking at so that when I was looking at a card that I bought on eBay or through a friend or just from opening up a pack of cards, and then I would calculate my expected value. Right. So I'm Mm. when I got back into cards, I looked at it differently than when I was a kid because I started looking at it in my trading lens. Like I actually have like four different strategies that I use. Like, you know, I kind of my famous I I turned around fifteen thousand dollars into probably north of ten million dollars at the peak of the market trading cards. 
And it was mainly from just following four strategies just based on math, right? Because I felt like, you know, I'm I'm a math guy. I'm a very logical guy. And I just saw some simple arbitrage. And, I, you know, I loved cards, so I would just do that as a way to fund my personal collection, right? It wasn't, at, I didn't go into it being like, let's let's find, a, this is an awesome way to make money. I was like, well, I want to afford some of these amazing cards that I wasn't able to afford when I was a kid. How can I fund it? How can I make some money to get them, right? And yeah, I had a couple of different strategies. Like the, I would say like the grading strategy was a really great one. You know, I was generally making around like I remember like 40% every time I would grade a card and they would grade a PSA 9. And then if they graded a PSA 10, I was making like 10x on my money, which was crazy back then. I did a lot of cross grading, which is taking one company, like it's in a Beckett holder. You actually physically crack it out, right? And then you send it to another grading company, hoping that the standards, there's some like arbitrage in the standards. And so that worked out really well, uh, especially this one is when there's population arbitrage. If there is very rare card and it doesn't exist in one company and people maybe prefer that company. So I I did a lot of that. And then, you know, I started going after the rare stuff. So I learned, that's when I learned about population. I was like, well, the population is only limited by the serial numbers of the cards, right? So if I find a card that there's only five of in the world in the first place, population can't be more than five, right? I really started going after all the rare Kobe Bryant cards. That was kind of like my, my big thing in 20, 2017, 2018, I was like, I want a corner of the Kobe Bryant market. I want to get all the best cards. I want to have the biggest Kobe Bryant collection in the world. And so all of these things that you can do in the stock world, I was like, wait a second, I can do the exact same thing here. And not only that, but I have the upside if I predict the player correctly. Right. And I was like, what better place? Kobe Bryant, right? Like, you know, I always equate buying cards to just investing in the player's equity. Right. And Kobe Bryant was a blue chip player. You know what I mean? There was no doubt in my mind that I was already buying Kobe Bryant when people were arguing whether he was number one or number two, right? So I was like, okay, my downside is probably fairly limited, but you know, if my upside, I think 2016, 2017 were probably his last years of playing, it was like, great. There's not much downside from here. Nowadays, if I'm buying some of these younger players, you can get caught in a situation where they're just, you know, Zion is a really great example. I mean, his cards were so hot and then he gets injured or has a brand reputation hit, his cards plummet, right? I love that element of figuring out who do I bet on and what are the elements and predictors of a, I don't say player success on the court, it's their brand success on and off the court, right? Yes. There's a mystique element too. Like sometimes you'll have players that have insane stats. Basketball is a good example. A lot of the big men. Like Shaq, for example, I mean, an absolute monster, but his cards, although they've started to climb comparative to a Jordan or a Kobe, they're a fraction of the price. Yeah. And so, and then the other thing that you made me think of is you look at Kobe, he played in LA, look at the size of that market and that fan base, which also drives demand where you've got like, I'm a Kansas city guy, Patrick Mahomes is my guy. So I've really started to go in that direction with my personal collection. Yeah. Now, Mahomes has kind of eclipsed just the Kansas City fan base because he's started to become, you know, seen on the national scene. But Kansas City will never have the demand that LA or New York has population-wise, you know. So there's just so many fun dynamics like that when you really start to dive in. Yeah. And when, you know, the reason I like it, it's very similar to the stock market. I try to really like if you if you really take a step back, there is a set of elements, right, that obviously control the price of the stock. And 
majority of stocks don't pay dividends, right? There's no cash flow. When people buy Tesla, they're betting on Elon Musk. They're betting on the future, right? It's no different than betting on Giannis, right? It's Elon versus Giannis. One comes in a stock certificate and one you get a really cool card, right? And you have to predict demand, right? And so there's a lot of elements, I think, in the card market and what affects players on and off the court that are really interesting dynamics, right? So like the market, like the market that the player plays in really affects their their demand. Are they liked by the international population, right? Like if you have international demand, you obviously are going to have a much more lucrative card. How you act off the court, like I've learned this, like players who are quiet off the court, unfortunately cannot, are not achieving this other brand recognition that maybe somebody else does, right? And so there's so many different elements and so many different ways to speculate, which is what we all do on a daily basis on different asset classes. And for somebody who loves sports and stocks, it's like the perfect marriage of an asset, right? And I think everybody in this space is that investment, like combining that investment professional sports related thing. And so it creates this awesome way of meeting people and also just a great market in the first place. Yeah. And, and as a dad now, it's such a cool thing. So, so Dallas Card Show, I'm sure you've been a time or two at, at this point. And so that's an easy one for us. It's the second biggest behind the national, which I know you're getting ready to head out to here shortly. So the nationals, the, the biggest one that happens every year in the US, the Dallas Card Show is every couple months, like 700 tables. It's insane. But now as a dad, one of my fondest memories, Nash, my middle son, their trade shows and their trade nights insane. Like people are there till four in the morning out in the lobby, just trading cards. My son gets his Pokemon collection out and I've got another buddy, Keith and his son, Trey and Aiden, and they're sitting there. I'll never forget this moment. There's this lady, she's probably 40 and my son's doing a deal with her, like for a $90 Pokemon card. And he sold this 40 year old lady, her first trading card ever. And he's checking his prices, you know, checking the comps. And he's like, yeah, I can take 90 for that one. And he's doing a deal and he's like 11 at the time. And I'm like, this is his introduction into how economics work, how business works. And he's having fun doing it. And it's just like the coolest entry just into business for kids too. And so that's, that's also what pulled me back in is just creating these memories with, with my boys and my daughter's not into it yet, but maybe she will be someday. Yeah. It's, it's a version of the modern day lemonade stand, right? Like it's like an intro. It's a one-of-one getting into business. I laugh. I say one of the best parts of my job is that I get to negotiate with 11 and 12 year olds, right? On yes. You know what I mean? Like a typical weekend for me, and I'm not, I'm not joking, is I will get a call usually from somebody like you who's like, my kid wants to give you some feedback on your app, right? And then they're like, can I put him on the phone? Right. And I would like, I love, I love getting feedback, you know, they're customers at the end of the day. And sometimes it's like, well, I see that you guys have this, like, like they're literally like, they're using the app. They want to get feedback on it. They, they try to get negotiation advice. And sometimes they're like, I heard you have this card. Can we, you know, can we make a deal on it? And they're, you know, they're trying their negotiation skills. Yeah. You got to give them the respect. They're coming in. That's like, well, the, you know, the alt value says it's worth a hundred dollars, but I think $80 is a really fair price. If I were to buy it from you right now, man, Leor, I'm telling you, it blew me away. There's a kid. He actually has created a brand for himself. I'm sure you've connected with him. He's known as the kid in the suit. The guy literally is at the Dallas card show in a full suit. Yeah. And he's, he's walking around. I mean, I think he's got like a hundred, $200,000 worth of cards. And these kids 
it is insane. I met this one kid. I, he couldn't have been more than 10. He traded up and his goal was he wanted the 87 Fleer, the Michael Jordan rookie. That's like an iconic card. And he had traded up to a PSA five or six. That was at least a few thousand dollars from nothing. And it was all from doing deals and doing trades similar to sounds like when you jump back in yeah. and you started just seeing the opportunity and the market dynamics. And just once you start to figure out it, it is very similar to the stock market. And like you mentioned kind of Kobe being blue chip back to Zion. There's so many similarities where it's like, oh, this is like a, a seed level investment. If you're investing in a rookie, like he could go to 10 X, 20 X, hundred X, or he could go to nothing. Or you've got like the small cap, the guy that had like the first good year or two, like John Morant skyrocketed. Now you see the off-court behavior. He's gone the other way. And so there's just so many of these dynamics of like, do I want to bet on a Tom Brady? That's like, that is a blue chip. It's going to incrementally grow up over time, but you've already missed the big jump, right? And so I just, it's so fun. I build my portfolio very similar to how I think about my stock portfolio. Like I do a, an 80, 20 type type rule, 80% are, I, I call it goats, hall of famers. Right. Mm-hmm. And generally the prices will at least increase in the, in the rate of inflation, right? There's stores of value over the long run. And so that's kind of how I think about the assets. And then there's nothing better than speculating. Right. So I have 20% of my portfolio, like I'm betting on just up, up and comers, right. Anthony Edwards, right. Jonathan Kaminga on the Warriors. Are you all basketball or do you diversify among sports? My analysis has showed me that I can make the most money on on basketball. And the reason is, is that part of at least my strategy, and again, everyone has different strategies. I'm generally a long-term holder on cards. Like I'm not, I'm not, I don't wheel and deal too much. And I mm-hmm. think about one way that demand is created is whenever they're on TV, you can think about the number of times and an announcer is going to say that person's name as just a sheer amount, sheer demand equivalent, right? So the average basketball player has a longer career than the average football player. They're on more primetime games. So more people are watching it, more people are hearing the name. There's just more demand, right? The only people in the, the NFL that have that long of a career are quarterbacks, right? Yep. So I will buy, I'll buy quarterbacks in the NFL but I generally will do it once they've hit their career accolades. So like Mahomes, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, I just bought a a crazy card. It was Brett Favre, Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, Peyton Manning, Dan Marino, Steve Young, all four of them, all their autographs on the card and a piece of the shield of their Jersey. So four. Wow. That is a crazy card. Yeah. Back and forth. And it's a one of one. Right. So all Hall of Famers, right? Like I'm not. And were these were okay? So were these, I'm assuming this was at the time where they were game worn or no on the jersey. I think it is game worn. I have to read the back of the card to double check, but all the autographs are on the card. And again, they're Hall of Famers. So I don't have any directional risk if they're like they're not getting injured tomorrow. Right. Yeah. I speculated a lot last year. Like I bought Zach Wilson, right? I just, I mean, that. Talk about losing 90% on something, right? Like I just lost it all. So it's just very hard in football. Like you have 16 games. I don't know if I have the formula. I think other people are much better at predicting and scouting than I am. So I try to just stick to like my, my strategies that were true and true. So a couple just phrases to make sure the audience understands. So game worn on a, so what year, you probably know this history a lot. At what year did they start taking jerseys and then putting them onto cards? Because at first it was autographs was kind of the first alteration. 
I think that was late nineties, maybe no early nineties, I think is what I remember there. So, and then they started taking pieces of Jersey and memorabilia and putting them into the cards. And then at some point they started serial numbering cards where they would only make a set amount. So when you say one of one, it means that was the only card of that type ever made. So it's like Willy Wonka's golden ticket, the equivalent of that in sports cards. So maybe a little history there could be helpful. Yeah. So basically, I mean, you brought it up, the junk wax era. So technically the junk wax era ended in 1996. That was the first year of serial numbered cards. That was when Mm -hmm. the card manufacturing companies introduced real scarcity, right? And on the back of the card or on the front of the card, it would literally say limited to and it would actually give you a serial number. So if it was limited to 500, it would say 007 out of 500. So you knew you know, how many existed and you knew which one was yours. So it actually gave a unique identifier to every single card. So all that started in 1996, which also happened to be Kobe Bryant's rookie year. So that was created a lot of popularity amongst cards. And I think between this one, I'm not going to quote myself. I have a feeling that 1999, maybe even 1998 was the first year that they started inserting jerseys into either Upper Deck or SP. And then it became a lot more pronounced in 2003 when they released Exquisite, right? And that became a base set, right? Where everything had basically, it was not game used, it was player worn, but that's when they really started it. And that was LeBron's year. So both LeBron and Kobe had new products come out that really, I would say, like set the the industry on fire. So I want to give a little more context here that we haven't hit yet, because this blew my mind when I kind of jumped back in during COVID. So number one, the scarcity, the created scarcity with the serial numbered card. And then there were parallels where they would say, oh, this is a gold. So it's out of 10. And the other thing you just touched there was there became different levels of products. So back in my day, there was the Topps baseball card. I remember the 87 Tops with the wood frame. That was like the first year I jumped in. Tops had one product. Oh, I guess there was Tops traded, right? There were, which was basically like the rookies from that year. And then when I got back in, I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Because there was Panini, which was like tops. And then there were all of these different levels of sets and cards where you would go all the way up to the very top, which was like the flawless, the national treasures, which were super scarce cards with autos included, with jerseys included. But these, I mean, at the time I was looking at them, two or $3,000 a box for like five cards. And so I was like, whoa, this is a whole different game than I grew up with. And then where my mind was really blown, which I think a lot of this happened during COVID, you started seeing seven-figure card sales. So there was like a Tom Brady's, like a super scarce rookie card. There was a LeBron. But these were literally cards that were not the Mickey Mantles, the Babe Ruth that were almost 100 years old. These were cards that had been manufactured within the first, you know, the last five, 10 years going for seven figures. And that's where I realized the investment great opportunity. This is not just like the cards I used to collect as a kid anymore. So I'd love to hear just like your thought speaking yeah. to that, because I believe you guys also have a private fund now where you're actually going out and buying these grail level cards of goats that are seven figure type of cards. So I want financial advisors out there to realize this is not going out buying 10, 50, hundred, $200 cards. There are like high-level investments when it comes to cards these days. Yeah, so we have the largest fund in the world. It's a $25 million fund that invested in basically like high-end sports cards with the goal of obviously like making money and returning on our investment. The reason I started the fund in the first place is this category is not correlated to the S&P, right? So it's mm-hmm. a really great way to diversify your portfolio. So we started it in June 2020. We actually 
we bought the most expensive card in the public market back then. It was LeBron James's rookie card. It sold for $1.8 million. It was, it was a record at that time. And yeah, I believe over the course of the next 30 years that this asset class is basically going to be the, this is our generation's version of art, right? Art mm-hmm. is a store of culture. That's kind of how I think about it, right? It's a store of stories of that time, right? And it's told in different ways, right? And I think we're living in a generation where sports is a big part of our culture, right? It's why that Mickey Mantle is so expensive or a Babe Ruth card is so expensive, right? These are figures of our history that are have very important and relevant to society. And so why wouldn't a LeBron James card or a Michael Jordan card or a Steph Curry card or a Giannis card, right? be worth that amount in 30, 40 years, right? And so that's kind of the bet that I've been making. The second part that I've studied a lot on asset classes, particularly collectibles, is that they really start gaining value 25 years after the fact. And it's this really unique phenomenon. And a lot of people ask me, like, why 25 years? It generally becomes, like most people, when they start collecting things at the ages you mentioned, at 6 to 13, Right. And then 25 years later, when they're in their 30s and 40s, well, they have discretionary income for the first time in their life. And well, what do they want to spend their money on? That thing when they were a kid that they couldn't get, but made them really happy, right? It's happiness. We're all trying to figure it like it's joy, right? And it's joy bottled up into something, right? It's you're remembering that story, that moment, that that moment with your dad or your mom or your friend, right? At that local card store, seeing that card. And it's now it's a moment for you to say, wow, I've made it in my life. I want to go and get that, right? Um, And so you see this in all asset classes that after 25 years, right? They really start getting a lot of value because of that nostalgia effect, right? And so 1996, first year of true scarcity, right? So 25 years comes out to around 2021, Combine that with COVID and low interest rates, right? Um, combining that with gambling becoming legal, and this is a way of betting on players. It's actually investing in players. It just created a perfect marketplace. And it's not like this, it's not like NFTs where this market just popped up overnight. This market has been around for, I mean, first cards were made in the 1800s, right? So it's a very mature market. And so yeah, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think, you know, with the investments that people are putting into this space, I only think that it's getting bigger. So there's just a lot of reasons to invest in it right now. All of what you said, 100% nostalgia. Guilty right here. Ricky Henderson was my guy growing up. I had a 1982 Tops two years after his rookie year, and I still had it. It was in the basement box, just like the one your parents sent you. And so I go get that thing out. By the way, I just got it back. It got a PSA 8, not bad. Um, not worth any it's worth like 50 bucks it's worth nothing but a 10 would be worth a lot but what was one of the first cards i bought i went to the 1980 ricky henderson the rookie card i could never afford as a kid understood the grading process so one of my grail cards i now have is a it's actually an sgc 10 so there's a population of eight and it's you know 40 50 thousand dollar card somewhere in there give or take but what's crazy is that store of value you just talked about, the store of happiness. I love the definition there. It's so true. Um, I've converted at least five of my buddies that are about my age into card junkies because same thing. They grew up in my era. They were going to the sports card shows. They had their old box of cards. Now they're getting back into it with the kids. So at that 25-year increment, the other thing is 
it's like a generational thing to where now the kids and they can go repeat those memories. It's the same reason all the cartoons from my era are back on TV and their movies now, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. All they're doing is going through these nostalgia cycles. Yeah. And of course, what are all the parents doing? They're going and getting their kids into what brought them joy as a kid because they want to share that happiness with their children. So, um, I, but I do think when you put an investment lens over top of that, it's like, it just makes sense yeah. once you start to see these cycles and how they repeat. What details on the LeBron rookie, just so, because the difference from when I was a kid, there were like three Ricky Henderson rookies. It was like Topps, Donris, Fleer, right? Because that, those were the three card makers. Today, there are thousands of rookie cards. Rookie card, by the way, being their first issued card as a professional player. So now you probably know, I mean, how many hundreds of different variations of a LeBron rookie are there? there have- yeah, there, there's probably like, if I had to guess less than two, yeah, 2000 or something like that, but not, I think not all are held equal, right. Or not all have the same. Yeah. Right. And so, so can you speak to what makes that LeBron, the million dollar LeBron versus here's a bunch of LeBrons. They're like hundred dollar LeBrons. Like, why does that one matter more yeah. than others? So yeah. So basically the elements that make a specific card more in demand than another demand. So first is the manufacturer of the card, right? There are different brands of manufactured cards. And every brand had different like products. So you had some high-end products. So when you bought the pack, it would cost, I think, $3,000 or something like that. And then there were the low-end ones where you could buy a pack for $2.99. So um, the first is the manufacturer. So in this case, it is the manufacturer that was the most expensive. It was the highest-end product. It literally came in like this wooden case. And I think you got like probably seven cards in it and you're paying thousands of dollars. So very expensive. Not everyone could be able to afford it. So, okay, that's number one. On the LeBron, was that the exquisite? Yeah. So, okay, exquisite. So exquisite. So it was the best brand. And then the second part, within that brand, right, they have different uh, parallels, as you kind of described, different rarities of different sets. So in this particular one, there was the base one, which they made 99 of. And then they made a really unique one that was just out of 23. So it was a patch of his, uh, of his jersey and an autograph. So they call them the rookie patch autos. It was kind of the the rarest rookie card that you can get. So you can either get the 99 version or the 23 version. So already very few people are getting these because it's very hard to get them within the boxes. So this one is the the rare parallel, which is the out of 23. There is no other rare parallel out there. The patch, right, which a lot of people care about, right? They talk about how many colors are in it. So it's generally like it's either completely white, one, two, or three, or four. This one has three colors on the patch. So it makes it a really rare patch. And then there's the grading element. So the card is graded by Beckett as a BGS 9.5, which is the highest grade that you can get in that card. And there's only two of in the world. So you're talking about the best brand, right, in the rarest form, in the highest grade, in the lowest pop of the best player. And so it really is the best of the best of the best. And let's now go to... You mentioned the S&P 500. So obviously, pretty much everybody listening to this show will know what that is because they probably have a lot of assets they manage sitting in that index right now. And when you look at what I would call the high-end collectible market, so sports cards, fine wine, um, cars, watches, art, you mentioned earlier, what I see Alt doing is with the invention of the internet, you're democratizing access to the information. So you've got Warren Buffett, obviously, I think the 
obviously the most famous investor on the planet alive today. Um, I remember reading a story about him. And back in the day, 60s, 70s, he would go to the library. He would check out these volumes of information that was the company financials. And he would have to sit there and literally sift through, like I'm picturing like in a little like dark corner of a library, the company information to see where are the inefficiencies, where are the opportunities as me as an investor, where I can buy it at a price less than what it's worth. And I just take that the internet was invented. Now you got all of that information with the click of a button on the internet. I see the same dynamic in cards, although it's been slower to get there because it was a very opaque marketplace. You were doing the same thing in a in a Beckett price guide. You had to go to these local like swap meets or card shops and negotiate just like stocks were traded back in the pit in the day. Now the internet has made this accessible and now you're aggregating all this, all these auction prices, not just eBay, but other notable ones, gold and so forth. And so now you've brought it up to today's speed and now you can really do some really cool things where you can start to price these. And so I want to go back to performance base. If we looked at, let's call it the high-end sports card market, and if you've got a definition for that, I'd love to hear it. But if we lay that side-by-side side with the S&P 500 and just here's historically you know, the average returns over extended amounts of time, how does the sports card market compare to that on, on the high-end card side? Yeah, I think the high-end is probably a little bit more stable than the rest of the market. I think Honestly, the last two years, there's definitely been a ton of volatility, just like there has been in in any asset class, but it's all about predicting the right player, right? And so the high end of the market, there's not really an index right now, so there's not really anything that I can like directionally quote. But what I can tell you is that if you get your player right, right, you can outperform the market by a magnitude. If you get the player wrong, right, obviously you're going to get crushed, right? Like I was just checking this morning, Ellie De La Cruz. It's like, I don't follow baseball probably as much as you do, but he's on a tear right now. I, I think I saw his cards up 83% in the last 90 days, right? Wow. So, I mean, there's, that doesn't happen in the stock market. You know what I mean? But if you predicted him correctly, like you're obviously doing very well. Or on the flip side, as you mentioned, John Morant, right? You're, you're probably not doing so hot. So, the high end of the market is a little bit more stable for Hall of Famers, right? So if we're looking at Tom Brady cards, we're looking at Michael Jordan cards, I do think that those are a little bit more stable. They're, the market is probably from the peak, it is down probably around 40%. But over the long run, right, I do think that probably the growth is somewhere in the teens. And one of the things I've seen, and you can probably put a lot more context around this than me, so let's go... Just trying to think of a card that would maybe be a good one of a player people know. Let's just go Patrick Mahomes, just because that's my hometown guy. And obviously, his rookie year was 2017. So now there's thousands, I feel like thousands of variations of his rookie cards. And you've got what I would call the lower tier. You know, you could probably pick up a Mahomes rookie card for 25, 50, maybe 75 bucks on the low end. And then all the way up to, actually, I believe Mahomes had a seven-figure sale too, the, the high-end cards. $4.2 million, the record for a Patrick Mahomes card. And was that National Treasures? What was the... National brand? Treasures Shield. Yeah. So the patch had the NFL Shield on it, right? Which is a sought after, just like the logo man is on the NBA side. And so if you look at, at a player like that, if we're making the comparison to stocks... He's not a Tom Brady with with seven championships where his goat status is locked in. I mean, there's like the 
Ben Roethlisberger's of the world that won two Super Bowls early and then fell off from there. So he's established, but there's still a lot of career in front of him. Injury, a lot of things could happen. If we look at the high-end market, but you go to like almost retired or Hall of Fame players, I feel like that's where it stabilizes. Unless it's an OJ Simpson scenario where he does something insane after he's done. That's like a pretty locked-in value there. Is that where like, if we look at this through fund manager lens, the $25 million fund now, are you allocating heavily towards like established careers, Hall of Fame, GOAT level players, super scarce cards? Or is there any speculation piece of it, like a Patrick Mahomes sort of card that still has a lot of career left in front of him? Yeah, so it's 80-20. So same mm-hmm. exact kind of strategy. So we have Peyton Manning's best card. We have Drew Brees' best card. We have one Mahomes card. We speculated. We bought Josh Allen's best card and we're up like... on Josh Allen. We bought Joe Burrow's best card, right? So yeah, 80-20 is probably, I would say, kind of the formula for us. Cool. Cool. Okay. So there's a ton of stuff we haven't got into, Lior. We haven't got into any of the scaling business stuff. You're actually running two companies at the same time, so I want to get there. But before we jump off the collectibles, what's happening at Alt, anything that we should touch on there before we move to maybe business building and some of the stuff you're doing with with your other company? I think probably the only really interesting thing that we didn't talk about was uh, this concept of the alt value. One of the things when we talked about how there's a lot of arbitrage to be made in opaque markets, right? There's a lot of information asymmetry or information arbitrage, right? I think Warren Buffett is a primary use case of how he made his money is by being able to find information that others didn't have. He used to do a lot better than he does today because of that. that For sure. Imagery. Right now, that information is pretty democratized, to be quite honest, in the stock market, right? So everyone's trying to figure out how do they get an edge. So when you're on the marketplace side, our goal is actually to democratize all the information to make it a really fair playing field, because especially a lot of people on this call maybe haven't bought in a card before. And so we want to make it really easy for them to figure out how much is this worth? How much should I buy it? Is this a good card? Uh, And so a lot of the effort that we do is actually providing the values right? So that people don't have to dig for this information in, in different pockets of the internet. And so we've spent a lot of, a lot of our R&D budget on just the data science, the machine learning on being able to create a dynamic price guide so that people can know, hey, how much did I pay for this card? And actually one thing I want to, that's actually how I started using Alt. So just some intel for you. And I think a lot of people have found Alt just simply, it, it's been the most holistic view of accurate pricing. Because you can go to eBay, which I believe is still the biggest marketplace for cards currently, but you only have eBay historical sales and then you only have them for a set amount of time and they fall off. You started aggregating and pulling from all these sources where it was, you know, if we could rewind back to the, the 80s, it was like you were pulling from all the card shows and card shops and aggregating the prices. Well, now the high-end cards are, are at auction on the internet somehow. So I love that. That's been huge. The other piece of that, getting into the investment side, illiquid assets, the not so fun thing about them is you can have a card worth $100,000, but it's sitting there in a display case, or actually I store most of my high-end cards with you. You have a professional vaulting service that maybe we get into that because that has to be interesting. But you now actually offer a loan service where let's say I've got a portfolio of $500,000 worth of sports cards. You will actually create some liquidity And you have to obviously be able to price the cards to be able to do that. So let's go into the loan product and how that came to be. I think a lot of advisors would find that interesting. 
Yeah. So for me, any asset that's a legitimate asset, somebody has to be able to take it as collateral and be able to offer a a loan or some type of liquidity product against it, right? So we do have an asset-backed product. So if you do have that $100,000 card or $100,000 portfolio, we have a dynamic lending product that will figure out what loan to value we are comfortable giving based on the collateral that you have. And we look at the underlying players, risk, pricing history to come up with basically a, an LTV for your basket. And then based on that, we create, it's like probably like two clicks and you get all, and you can basically, it's a line of credit essentially. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, if you can share, don't share anything that shouldn't be public, but what's a standard loan to value with sports cards? Yeah, I think it depends on, on again, the, the players, right? Like if you're having a basket of hall of famers, right? Very different than a basket of risky and speculative players. So it'll, it'll be anywhere between 15 and call it 30, 33%. Cool. And so basically the company, that's your collateral for the loan. I know many, you probably have multi-millions of dollars stored, I would think in your vault right now. So let's, let's go to that because I think that's also super interesting. I look at it as almost like a wine cellar for sports cards. You ship them off, they're in a secured facility. So let's talk about that because I entrust you all with a, a decent amount of sports cards of my own. Let's talk about the actual storage facility. Like, how did that come to be? How hard was that to like get up and running? So the, I model everything around how I see the modern day brokerage houses for stocks function and custody, right? They all act as your primary custodian, right? You don't even think about it, right? It's like, where is my stock mm-hmm. certificate, right? You have a digital stock certificate. So we act as your custodian as well. We have a bank-grade vault. Uh, we don't disclose the location. And we keep your cards very safe. You know, we digitize them. We archive them. And so basically, you can still interact with them. You can still trade them. You can still sell them. You can still take a loan against them. But it's basically, instead of you're going and putting them in your local you know, bank safety deposit box, you're sending it to a professional company. And we're going to keep it pretty safe for you. And it really is. There's so many analogies and similarities between the stock market. Like you log on to a Fidelity account. I've got this many shares. Here's the, you know, the historical pricing of it. Same thing. I pull up the card. You, you guys do an incredible job digitizing it because I've got an app where I, you can see the front, you can see the back. You guys obviously will have the graded cards. And so now if I've got a PSA 10, which would be PSA's version of a, a perfect, a gym mint card, I can now scroll down. I can see the historical pricing based on auctions. I can see the pop count or the population count in PSA slabs, in BGS, SGC coming anytime soon? Soon. Soon. Okay, good. That'll be helpful. But you can really see a population count. Such a cool, intuitive product. And there's a lot of very established companies out there that are great companies, Beckett, PWCC. But what you all nailed is the intuitive user experience where, you know, there's other companies that do similar things, vaulting cards, auctions, all that. But where you all have nailed it, and I just want to give you a compliment, is the UI and the user experience. There's a lot of groups out there just clunky. It's not intuitive. And so continue to keep taking the feedback from the 11 and 12-year-olds, I guess, is, yeah, is what yeah. I need to tell no, you. We have, a, we have a lot to go. We have a lot to do. I mean, it's a journey. We're only three years in at the moment. Yeah. Well, let's go to... We've got a bunch of financial advisors listening and watching in. I didn't realize this until we were prepping for this conversation. So you're CEO of two companies. And so we've talked about Alt or Alt XYZ, Alt.XYZ for those that want to go check out the website. 
But also the second company, is a, the company you founded first, is a direct mail company. And so let's talk about that. I believe the name of that one is Lob. Is it L-O-B? Yeah. So Lob is a, a venture-backed company. Also, a it's a modern platform that allows enterprises to automate their direct mail. So if you think about any large financial institution who is trying to market and they want to use direct mail, they don't want to go to the post office or they don't want to interact with the printer. They want to be able to go and integrate their Inter- what maybe it's their internal software, they just want a nice UI where they can run a large-scale marketing campaign. So you can go on to Lob, you can tell us all the addresses that you have that you want to send it to. You can create a very complex direct mail piece. When I say direct mail, people generally think of like that bed, bath, and beyond 20% coupon. Yeah. That's the old way of doing things. It's it's not personalized, right? As an example, like one of the campaigns that you know, I think recently we did, or that someone did through the platform, Target was trying to do a campaign to get people to go into the local store. So they know your address, they know where the local Target store is, they generated directions from Google Maps. And so every single person had unique directions on how to get from their house to the local Target store, right? So that's crazy. So obviously that's going to drive a lot more ROI than your, hey, come to Target, you get 20% off, figure out where you actually go and do this, right? So we work with a lot of companies who are trying to generate demand for their business, whether it's acquisition, retention, sometimes it's compliance mailings, and we do all the kind of the, the software for that. So yeah, I've been doing that since 2013. It's a very large scale business. We did over $100 million last year. The business is on pace to go public in the course of the next two to three years. So it's a pretty large enterprise and it's been my baby for 10 plus years. And I wouldn't have started Alt if it weren't for my passion for cards and and, and business. And I just, I live and breathe business every single day. It's my favorite thing to do. I love learning. You know, I tell people my first dream was to, you know, to be in the NBA, but I'm not, I'm not six, six. You look like you're probably taller than me, but So, you know, for me, I wanted to be the best at what I do. And that's in business, it's building a really successful company, right? And so that's my NBA that, and it's something that I can compete against myself. I can push myself. Like it's not unlike a basketball game when I win in building a company, no one else loses. And so like, I love, Mm -hmm. I love business. I love competing in business. And, you know, I want to build a lot of value for the world and for the customers that I'm selling into. I love the abundance mindset. The people I want to surround myself with, it's not the zero sum game of for me to win, you have to lose like politics. You know, that's why politics gets so ugly. It's there's only one winner and the other one has to lose. To your point on business, a successful business can make others' lives better. I want to tell a story. I wasn't planning on this, but had a good chat with your chief of staff, Meredith, yesterday, and we were kind of prepping for this conversation. And somehow we got into the conversation of how she became your chief of staff. And I think this just speaks to your approach because she was talking about your love for business and the fact you're running two companies at once. And she said, well, yeah, I want to start my own business someday. I want to be a CEO. And she's, I think you guys connected at a dinner party or something. And uh, she said, I got to know Lior. He loves business. He loves to learn. And he said, well, if you want to be a CEO, just come be my chief of staff for a couple of years. You'll get CEO training 101, then go start your business. And you have to have an abundance mindset for that conversation to happen. 
because a lot, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of business owners. It's almost like when you join my company, like I want to shackle you to the desk and I don't want you to leave. If you leave, that takes away from what we're building. And I think that's complete BS. It's like everybody has a season in life. If somebody at Triad spends a two, three years here and then goes somewhere else and, and builds the business of their dreams, like, great. We had them for a season in their life. They were a contributor. They learned. And then go build something awesome. That said so much about you before we actually technically met. And so share that with me because that has to be one of the secrets to how you've scaled two businesses very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it starts with you have to be people oriented, right? Like you have to understand people deeply and you can't be selfish. And so like any person who comes and works with me, I want to understand their motivation, right? Like how can I make them successful in their career? Because that's going to motivate them for whatever time that they are with me and my company, right? To help me create value, right? Because everyone is, it's a trade. Everything is a trade, right? And so if you know what somebody else is looking to do, you can get the most out of them. And so at least for me, the people that I like to hire is people who are really curious and very entrepreneurial. And that does mean that they're going to start a business one day, right? And instead of me thinking, oh man, they're going to be leaving in two years and I'm going to have to go and hire another person. Well, I flip it around and say, awesome. I'm going to go help them start their business. I can then go invest in their business, right? They can be successful. And that's just another way that I can also be successful, right? So if you invest in people in the long run, you can also, again, it's that mindset of abundance. They can be very successful and you can be part of their journey too, right? So I've had a lot of employees who have started businesses, some even more successful than mine. And I've gotten to teach them and start their journey and then go, then I'm along for the ride as well. Right. And it creates this ecosystem and that just compounds over time. So I always think about business. It's not a discrete game. It's not like everything that you do affects things later on. And so whenever, again, going back to hiring somebody, it's not that one time that they're going to be working for you. Right. It could be, it's that one first impression that can compound both from a, Hey, from a reputational perspective, they might go talk to somebody and say, man, I learned a lot just from being at that company. And it propelled me in my career when I went and go and when I went on to work for another company, or I learned so much at that company and I was able to start my own business. And then the CEO then gave me the confidence and then invested in my business too. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's just my approach. Like I, I want to build an ecosystem. I want people to have the same chance that I had. I want them to make the same mistakes that I had. Like I tell this quite openly, but Lob was my third business and Alt is my fourth. That means that the first two did not make it, right? But I had to go through those chances and I wouldn't change anything for the world. And I love what I do. I want somebody else to go and have that same experience, right? And so I'm always encouraging people to start companies, probably too much. Like just start the company. You'll fail, but it's it's a good learning. And you it's it's usually the the third or the fourth one that works out, right? Yeah. So, but you got to love business to do that. Right. So I think I attract a lot of people who are excited about that. And like, I want those people to come under my week and I have a lot of patience to teach them. Well, you nailed something that's definitely core to what I believe too, Lior. And it's, there's compound interest. Obviously you grew up in finance. You know how that works. I grew up in finance. I know how that works. So, you know, some call it the eighth wonder of the world. I think what a lot of people forget is compound relationships and how when you invest into relationships early and into people, how that can exponentially impact you. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Cameron Harold, he came on the podcast and he said, your network is your net worth. And I love that, not from a financial aspect, which obviously can help there too, but from a relational aspect of how awesome is it? Like 
Meredith, very intelligent. Obviously, that was quick. And I'm like, this girl's going places. And how cool is that going to be 10 years from now where she tells the story on a podcast someday of her time at your company and what she learned and how that fueled her company, whatever that came to be down the road. And that's just like, that's the stuff that fires me up is investing into others. So I just love that approach. Any additional thoughts on just scaling, acquiring great talent, thoughts around that? I think you can't be successful without hiring great talent. I spend more than 50% of my time recruiting people and talking to my talents and coaching them. It's by far the most important responsibility that a CEO has outside of setting the right culture and then creating the right long-term vision for the company. So I always say like the, in the most purest form, the CEO's job is to hire amazing talent, create a really strong culture and to set people on that vision. And they, that's the recipe for success, right? But if you don't get the people part right, you can't get anything right. So it is, it's so important to do that. I would say another part of my leadership that at least I do is I'm very authentically me all the time, which gives people permission to be authentically themselves. Yeah, unbashful to just be myself. I'm very comfortable in my own skin. And so if it means it's a nice day and it's 90 degrees out and I'm wearing a tank top on a call, like I'm, I don't need to dress up professionally just as I'm going to just show up and I'm going to feel comfortable and I'm going to do me. Right. And I think it breeds a really great culture. And I just find that it removes a lot of this. You know, when I worked on Wall Street, I had to wear a suit. I had to do, I had to follow all these rules. And I always would ask myself, like, why? Like, no one here is comfortable. Like, it's not like we want to wear a suit. Right. And so I rid myself of all of these things that maybe are taking away from me making smart decisions, having impactful conversations, or doing the work that I need to. And so I try to remove all the bullshit. Right. And so that's just, one of the things that's really important for me, like I want to have fun during the day, right? I want to work. I don't want to think through all the, anything that's bullshit or politics just doesn't work at any of my companies. Truth. Love that. Love that. Feel very much the same way. I think one of the greatest compliments you can get as a leader is that you're authentic because, you know, I spent some time in corporate America and to your point, like I also grew up, I remember as soon as I got into finance, I had to go spend like I don't know, more money than I had at the time on three or four nice suits. And it was like this pretender game, you know, where it was like, I got to dress the part to be able to fit in. And as I've just matured in this space, I've just gone more like, if I want to wear the Jordan ones to the office someday, I wear the Jordan ones because they're comfortable. They're me. And I've just found to your point, people respect that. They're like, I like this dude's just like who he is and like long hair. That's not cool in, in the circle of finance. And you know what? I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. I'm just going to do me to your point. And so it doesn't affect you. Yeah, man. You know, it doesn't affect that people shouldn't care about that. You know what I mean? And, and not only that, but then they say, yeah, I wanted to wear my Jordan ones too today. Right. Like, yeah, yeah like, I'm going to do that tomorrow. And it just, I think it, that's where it gets people excited. They're like, man, I respect him. I think that that was a great point. Yeah. Well, let's go back to talent acquisition. We've got, we're very fortunate at Triad. We're working with like the upper echelon, the top 1% of independent financial advisors. And one of the biggest hurdles I see get in the way, they're great salespeople. They're great at inspiration and motivation. They're, they're hard chargers. You worked next to a lot of Wall Street people. It's just like the type A personalities, they're going to go get it, right? They're problem solvers. That's really tough to slow down yeah. and translate that when you have to pour into a team, delegate to a team. So how do you start? Like Maybe we start at the very beginning. You talked a lot about culture and vision. How do you like go headhunt great talent? Are you hopping on LinkedIn? Are you working your warm network? Like, what are some places you found where you can find great talent 
And then maybe just walk us through that process of like, here's how I bring them into the company, the interview process, get them into our culture. What's that look like? So the crazy part is I've learned you can find talent everywhere. There's not like a recipe. I've hired 11 people from putting job postings on Craigslist, right? And so people are looking for jobs everywhere. I think here's, I would say some of my like interview success, or again, this is not a steadfast rule because what I'm looking for might be completely different than somebody else. I do not care what college you have gone to. Like it does not, like I'm not, I don't think I read any resumes, right? When people come and interview with me, I very much care about how your brain operates, right? And so like the first and foremost, I need to find people that are compatible with my working style, right? And so that's something that I've had to be really honest with myself on and what works and what doesn't work. So the first one I'm always looking for, I need, I need to work with logical people. I'm a very logical person. When I communicate, right, I, I need to see a linear fashion of thinking so that I can understand what they are planning to do from the strategy that I've built so that I can basically, in my mind, draw out and see if the expected value of the decisions that they're making are going to produce positive impact for the company. So when I'm interviewing somebody, I'm asking a lot of questions on numbers, on their goals, the decisions that they made. What did they think? How, what was the impact of that? What was the actual impact of that? And I'll go over and over and over again, because I'm, when I'm trying to do, there's this really great book called Thinking in Bets. I'm trying to see if the decisions that they're making beforehand, right, whatever they think the impact is over time, that they're generally right, right? Because that shows a logical pattern of thinking, right? Yeah. So that first and foremost is a criteria that you will not be able to work at any of my companies if you're not a logical thinker, because we won't get along. Like if you come to me and say, well, I want to do this because I think it's the right thing, right? Well, it's not, I'm like, well, how are you going to know if you're right? How are we going to scale that? How are we going to reproduce that? How do, you, how do you know how much budget you need to spend for that, right? I just know, wouldn't work in my world, right? So I care a lot about just people being very logical. We talked about people being authentic, right? Like it's important to me that I don't have to feel like I'm pretending or that you're pretending, right? Like we're, we're both professionals here. We, we came because we geek out on business, right? I think the being authentic is feeling comfortable in your own skin. It's being self-aware. It's being both a good communicator and a good listener, right? So I would say all of those things, right, kind of get wrapped into one. And then the last one I would say is grit and resourcefulness. I like people who can unblock themselves, right? I'm good if I don't know something. I have the tools that I need to do to go and find the answer. I don't need to go to somebody always and say, well, how do I do this, right? Like ever since the internet got created, like there's Google, there's ChatGPT, With those two things, you can find the answer to almost everything. And so I like people who are generally resourceful, right? And can unblock themselves because they can move at a pace that's faster than anybody else. So those are generally my three buckets. Like I don't, I don't think you need to check 400 different things. I think if you have those three things, I'll give you a chance. Love it. Let's talk about self-awareness as a leader. I've just found it's one of the most important things to develop. And I think some people naturally tend to have a little more of it. Some people are completely oblivious and there's nothing more painful in, in my world than being around somebody that's completely not self-aware. Yeah. And so I would love to hear your journey of self-awareness. Are you the type of guy where you have a team? And I know like some people call it radical transparency of like, Hey, at any point in time in this meeting, if you want to call us out, like, it's kind of like, I heard it said one time, we want people that disagree nicely. 
in our company and kind of, you know, hash ideas out. Let's go to self-awareness and then how that translates to communication within inside of your companies. How, how have you developed that yourself, your team? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Well, man, I do not know how to teach self-awareness. I do think that is something that if you have it, you have it. And if you don't have it, I don't really know how you, how you, you know, like you're asking me about my journey of self-awareness. I, I don't know where that, where that comes from. I think maybe it comes from making a lot of mistakes or being wrong or some sort of scenario where you thought maybe you were the best at something and then you got that culture shock or that moment of realization. You're like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not, right? So mm-hmm. I think awareness maybe comes with perspective, just me as I'm talking through it. So, I mean, the way I check self-awareness is I, again, I just go and ask them what their, their weaknesses are, right? And I find that I know my real weaknesses, you know what I mean? Like my real weaknesses, not the ones that I'm just going to say, oh, I'm a perfectionist or things like that. If someone can ar- articulately tell me something that they're truly working on, and I can see that it's a real pain, right? And that they're at, that shows me that real self-awareness. It's the ability and it's the vulnerability to be able to share it, articulate it, and it, for it to be real, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. And it's hard, and I think you have to have a level of perspective and vulnerability to be able to do it. Like it took me a long time for me to be like, you know what? Like I move very quickly and I can overlook things sometimes because I have a need for being the first to finish something. Right. And so being able to share like, okay, how is that negatively impacted decisions that I've made or experiences that I've been through and to share that and to talk through them like, okay, this person understands how they're showing up every single day right? There's good self-awareness there. For the second part that you were talking about, about more on the communication side, stylistically, I like people who are comfortable disagreeing with me. Like I can, I naturally communicate in a way that sounds like I know things, right? I don't know everything. Like I, I can tell you that right, right away. And so I need to surround myself with people who can say, Hey, Lior, you have a blind spot here, or I don't know if you've thought about this, right? And so I like that approach. I know some people don't like, I feel very comfortable. I take feedback really well. So, you know, if we're having a strategic meeting and I'm actively soliciting feedback from people to tell me, what am I missing here? How can we be doing this differently? I'm sizing the impact this way based on this map, which one of my assumptions is wrong, right? But I don't think that would work if I wasn't able to take feedback. And so that's where, again, if you're good at taking feedback, I think that approach really works really well. If you're not good at taking feedback, I don't think you can get people to challenge yourself. And if you can't take feedback, it's very hard to be a leader. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then it, I remember one time in a meeting, I, I've seen this happen a few times. One time I was observing a meeting and I forget, some topic was thrown out and a team had the guts to step out and say, hey, this was something that happened. I think we can level up here. And what I saw transpire right after that was the founder, the leader, basically like criticized them, kind of undressed them in front of the group. And what I saw happen there was like immediately like they put their head down and they're like, you just knew they were never going to speak up again because their voice was not welcome. And, you know, it's the old praise in public, criticize in private. And I've seen so many leaders back to the self-awareness. They do this and they don't even realize it's happening. And then they wonder why their team isn't behind them, doesn't speak up, doesn't add ideas because every time they do, they just get shot down. So you you have thoughts on that? Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, listen, I've also been the one who has probably done that early in my career and made those mistakes. And 
you know, I probably still catch myself. I'm not, again, not a perfect person. Like there'll be times where I'm very passionate about an idea and I'm interjecting or I'm over speaking on somebody, but it's important to catch yourself in those moments and either give them space to talk. So again, I just want to make sure that people know that I care about them and I'm listening to them and I do want to hear it. Right. It doesn't always mean that I'm going to take their idea and just run with it, but uh, I want to know that I respect their voice. Right. Yeah. That's people want to be heard right? They come to companies because they want to make an impact and that they're intelligent beings who want to share their perspective. And if I don't believe that, then I either have the wrong person because I just don't trust their or respect their opinion. But by nature, you need to hire people that are more intelligent than you, right? Otherwise, kind of going back to hiring, one of the qualities that I look for is I need to leave the call learning something from that person. And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be about business or just about something, because I want to I want to know that this person is better at me than something, right? Because every person has that in them. You just have to find what that is. Yeah. So much wisdom there. And what I love is the vulnerability to be able to just admit it. Like you mentioned it a little earlier, we kind of glanced over it, but self-awareness is vulnerability as well to where you're, you're able to admit in front of people, like, I don't have it all figured out. I've got this flaw. I made this mistake. And what I've found when you do it, it's kind of the Brene Brown, you know, she, I think made vulnerability like a thing. It's like, it's amazing how much that attracts people to you when you show your flaws and you're willing to admit them. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of that just in our conversation today. Well, let's go to, um, I know we're at the end of our time and you've got, you've got two companies going here. So I, I just want to say, thanks, Leroy. This has been really fun. I'm super sad i can't go hang out at the national with you but please but give us a little preview of your time at the national and maybe explain to people what the national is that have no clue what that is but that's right around the corner for you yeah i think you gave a really good overview before but it's at least the card card market version of the pit right so we're all live trading mm-hmm. we're all going to chicago together it's the biggest card show of the year we are showing up big this year. We're creating a pop-up museum. So we're bringing the world's most expensive cards. So we're bringing the LeBron James card that I mentioned that we bought for $1.8 million. We're bringing a Giannis's best rookie card. It's a one-of-one that, that we bought for also $1.8 million that we're up a lot on. And then we're bringing Steph Curry's rookie card, also one-of-one one, uh, that we bought for north of $5 million, which is probably the most expensive modern card and a whole slew of other assets. And then we're bringing cold, hard cash for anyone who wants to sell something on our exchange. So one of our products is we do give cash advances. And so we're, we're just pumped to really push liquidity and really show people this is a real asset. And we're, we'll, we're willing to give you cold, hard cash right now if you can consign something to our next auction. So yeah, I'm pumped. I'm pumped to just go around, buy some cards myself. I always go like, you know, before the show starts, I go and look at all the dealers inventory and I see if I can find something that I like. And then once the show starts, I'm in work mode. I want to talk to customers. I want people to get excited about their platform. I want to hear their feedback. I want to go talk to the 12-year-olds, maybe some 11, 9, do some trades with them. Have Just have some fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Invest in the future of the hobby. Any big cards you have your eye on where you, if you find it, that's going to be at the top of your list? These days, I'm just looking for something that gets me really excited. It's that nostalgia feel. Like I don't have a lot of football cards. And then I saw that. The Dan Marino, Steve Young, Peyton Manning, Brett Favre card. And I was like, I got to have it. So I'm just looking for cards that just get me like really juiced up and excited. You know what I mean? And so it's not a specific player per se, but yeah, just something that's going to bring some great memories. Well, I'm going to challenge you. So here's my investment advice. Bet on Mahomes. 
He's got Andy Reid. He's got a good core around him. He's young. I feel like he's not the Josh Allen that's going to, I love Josh Allen, by the way, but Josh Allen plays reckless a bit. Yeah. Uh, Mahomes picks his spots. I think he's pretty smart. Slides when he should, runs out of bounds when he should. So I would try to add at least one high quality Mahomes to the collection. Yeah. Right I need, I need one, man. I would love a, if there is a Mahomes Brady autograph card, that would be amazing. I have one, my man. It's in my alt vault. We can talk about it. Ooh, okay. I got to see it. So, but well, as we close here, this is the do business, do life podcast. We've talked a lot of business here, but I also know just from talking with Meredith yesterday, you also enjoy life and you live it passionately. I would love to hear Leor's definition of what do business, do life means to you. Yeah. I think for me, it's just, I only do things that make me happy. I really live by that every single day. I want to wake up and I want to be really happy with what I'm doing and where I'm spending my time on. Right. And that's, that's business. That's the people that I'm with, the activities that I'm doing. I want to be happy and I want to be, I want to be selfish in that manner, to be quite honest. Right. Like I get to choose what I do every single day. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they have that choice in life. And so to me, there's no way to do it other than being happy. I wrote a blog post probably like seven years ago right now about running to work. Like I want that joy every single day when I'm going to something. I want that, I want that skip in my step, right? And the moment that I don't have it, that's when my like self-awareness like alert goes off and says, are you sure you should be doing this right now? So that's probably the most important thing for me. Mm, I love that. One of the reasons I made a big change three years ago was looking through that lens for sure. We'll add that. Is the blog post still live? It probably is. Yeah. It's on the lob website. It's, I think it's called running to work. I'll, we'll find it. We'll add it to the show notes. That'd be fun to, to get a look back seven years ago, what Lior was thinking. So, well, my man, this has been awesome. Just knowing our shared interest in sports cards and investing, I'm sure our paths will cross here in person here in the near future. So thanks so much for uh, spending the time to share it here with the audience here today. Just so much good stuff. So Thanks so much, Leo, for hopping on yeah, the show. Of course, man. Yeah, thanks for putting this on. All right, my man. Till next time. All right, thanks for checking out this week's show. On to this week's featured review. It comes to us from the one and only Jude Wilson. And he says, one of the best five stars. I ran across Brad's previous podcast years ago. It became part of my ritual to listen to every episode, the content was like a mix of therapy with a graduate course in business specifically for independent financial advisors. I'm so thrilled that he's back. I'd highly recommend anybody interested in constant and never-ending improvement to add this podcast to their rotation. Well, Jude, just want to say thanks for the kind words. And Jude and I have had a chance to connect a number of times on the personal front. Jude's one of my favorites out there, has a firm in Florida, does, does a great job. And he is very much the guy that is a lifelong student, very humble, even regardless of a lot of the success that he's had over the years. And that's one of my things out there that's just really fun with the podcast is selfishly, I do it for my own personal improvement and record it, put it out to the world, and you never know who all it's going to impact. And it's humbling to hear an advisor of Jude's caliber continue to get value from the show episode in and episode out. And I'm going to try to hold that bar high as we continue to grow the show and continue to get great guests on that can serve you all out there. And I'm going to ask for a little help here. Oftentimes I find how people get the show 
is it's shared with them by a friend, typically a fellow financial advisor, that an episode hits home and it gets sent. So if there's an episode you've listened to so far on this show, here's my prompt for you. Go find that favorite episode and text it to a buddy or two, a fellow advisor out there that you think it might be able to help them out. And sometimes you'll be surprised how how these little things work and the, the momentum that it creates out there in the universe. So with that, thanks for listening in, Jude. Thanks for being an incredible supporter of the show. And I uh, just love what you're building out there. And uh, stay to it, my man. You've got big things in front of you. All right. Take care. Until next week, all. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations. 